0: Well, good evening, my name is James, one of the pastors here at this church, and 10 weeks ago, we began our series on Nehemiah, Restore and Revive, right? And we opened this book up in the Old Testament, and we began to talk about expectations. And as we close this book, again, we'll be talking about expectations. How do you expect a novel that you're reading to end, or a movie that you're watching to finish? We normally expect it to be along the lines of, and they live happily ever after. The bad guys lost and the good guys won. And we think, ah, it's a nice story. What's next? But we're about to see in the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah that this story doesn't end the way we expect it to. There's no neat conclusion. There's no walking off into the sunset. It's an unexpected ending. And yet, this ending, I believe, will connect more with your own personal experience and experience of church than any other alternative. That's true whether you're a Christian believer or you're a skeptic. So we're going to read Nehemiah 13 and finish this book.
1: So we're reading Nehemiah, and it starts on page 424. It's Nehemiah 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the course into a blessing. When the people heard this law, They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had put in charge of the storerooms of the house of of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done And providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the proportions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shalomiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zacher, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites." Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on the city, now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for all this also, my God, and show mercy to Me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I said men of Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the languages of Ashod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I had drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to their own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, my God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Uh, each of us probably can recall a time when our parents told us of a time when we were young, two, three, four, and playing maybe with our brother or sister, or praying, playing with our toys, and then mom or dad leave the room, and moments later, come back, and it's a mess. Chaos has been let loose. Maybe something like this on the screen. I mean, that's pretty bad. One minute, all was going well, the next, mayhem. I remember my mum telling me a time when I was playing with my teddy bears and it was all going well, and then she went out to get some toast, came back, and somehow in a couple of minutes I'd found the pseudo cream and put it on the faces of all the teddy bears because they were hungry. Then I chowed in myself and it was all over me, right? And she's like, what happened, right? I left and it was going well and I came back, And it's a mess. That is what Nehemiah is experiencing. He has led the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He has overseen the spiritual revival of God's people. And he honours his word, goes back to his boss, King Artaxerxes, and then sometime later comes back, verse 6. He comes back to Jerusalem. And what does he see? A revived people. Bibles was opened, obeying God, repenting of sin, worshipping him. Far from it. They'd closed the word of God. They're enjoying sin and they're a disobedient, self-centred people. This revival had come to a grinding halt. What's Nehemiah's response? Have a look at verse 8. I was greatly... Now, to be honest, I don't think that's a great translation. Greatly displeased is the kind of feeling you get when your Uber's running a bit late. Other translations do a better job. They render it, Nehemiah was very angry. Nehemiah was grieved to the core. Because when he came back and looked at his people, he had this disheartening reality That God's people had gone back to where it all began, rejecting God and His Word. So, as Nehemiah faces this disheartening reality, and we too will face ours, I want you to get a taste of how disheartening it actually is, right? Chapter 13 is this ironic symmetry with chapter 10, which we looked at two weeks ago. Because there in chapter 10, God's people say, we are committed to obeying God and we're going to obey him in very specific things. So God, the leaders say, we're going to obey God in our role. And then all the people say, we're going to obey God in our uh, church life and work life and home life. And they're very specific about the things they're going to do. By the time chapter 13 comes along, here's the thing, they disobey God in the very things they said they would do or not do. Tell you what I mean. Have a look. Turn to chapter 10, page 421. So one of the things they promised is they'd give 10% of the income to go to the house of the Lord, to run the temple, so the Levites could uh, run the temple. And then the last verse of chapter 10, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. Jump over back to chapter 13. Have a look, verse 10. I also learned that the portion assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? One moment, we're all out. We're going to do this, God. Next minute, there's not a dime or dollar to be seen. That's not the only issue. Chapter 10, there's a list of all the leaders who say, we are going to obey God in our, le- our responsibility as leadership. And then chapter 13, Elisha, the priest, is mentioned. Verse 4. Before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. In other words, he had a very important role. one a great responsibility. But he was closely associated with... With Tobiah. Now, if you've been with us uh, walking through the book of Nehemiah, that name should sound familiar. It's not a great name. It's a, well, it's a good name, but in terms of the book of Nehemiah, right? It, it's a kind of name like Judas or Chucky or Darth Vader, right? It's bad connotations in the book of Nehemiah. Because Tobiah, if you remember from chapter four, was making death threats against God's people as they started building this wall. He was the one who mocked them, saying, even a fox, if it climbed on your wall, the thing would fall over. That's that Sabiah, right? And what has he done? Elisha had provided him with a large room formerly used to saw the grain offerings and incense. Elisha was abusing his position of authority and air being out this room to an enemy of God. disobedience, when it comes to leaders, trickles down into the people. The other example is the Sabbath. Chapter 10, they say, we will not trade with those of different nations on the Sabbath. It's going to be our day of rest. But by the time verse 16 comes along in chapter 13, people from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kind of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. See, this disheartening reality that Nehemiah is facing, when he looks at this holy city of Jerusalem, he sees a people who are not being holy. Who one minute they say, yes, we're going to obey you, God, in this way, in this way, in this way. And he comes back and thinks, think, what went wrong? You were disobeying God in the very things you said you wouldn't do. Here's the thing, though. Our temptation is to say, well, that's the Old Testament for you. They never learn, they never listen, the cycle of sin on repeat. But we're living on this side of Jesus, we're different, right? And that's true, you know, we're, we're saved and forgiven, the Spirit lives within us, those in Christ, but you will face a disheartening reality as a Christian. Because we, we are still sinners, and God's people will still let you down. You know, when you're young and there's Christmas Day, it is the best day of the year, isn't it? You look forward to this day. You're so pumped. And as you grow up, though, you realise it actually takes a lot of effort for Christmas Day to work. It doesn't just magically appear, right? And as you get a bit older, you realise, hang on, when the family gets together, there's a bit of tension. That auntie doesn't really like that uncle and there's certain people who don't actually even come to Christmas lunch anymore because they just erupted into this fight. There's this, you see Christmas in a whole new light as you grow up. And it's not as glitz and glamorous as you once thought. That experience is similar to the experience of being part of a church. You know, you, you come and maybe you're a new Christian and you grow up and you think, it's the best place on earth and you love it. But then you stick around long enough and you realize that actually takes a lot of effort to get church off the ground. And there's unhelpful things that are said and an email that hurt you and and people did something that really offended you and, and all of a sudden you see it in a different light. The danger is to have a purer view of the church than even the New Testament does. Because you look at the churches in the New Testament, the church of Corinth, Galatia even those in the book of Revelation. And sin is very much present in those church communities. Don't forget, as Christians, our sin has been dealt with at the cross, but it's not been removed. And we mustn't pretend like that's the case. Sometimes when you talk about our testimonies, we do it in a way that you know, it says, well, I once was a drug addict into debauchery, murder, but then I became a Christian at age six, and now everything's fine, right? This sort of idea that I used to sin, but not anymore. No, 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 no. Our sin has been dealt with, but not been removed. And we mustn't pretend like this. So That is why the New Testament calls us to forgive one another, bear with one another, confess our sins to one another. Some of you don't need any more ammo in your gun when it's aimed at the church, right? Before you fire, let me say this. How many times have you had a chapter 10 moment followed by a chapter 13 moment? You know when you say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to obey this, I'm going to do this and this and this, and then moments later, you do the very things you said you wouldn't do. Don't put a perfectionism over the church that you wouldn't put over yourself. Because disheartening realities are present even in our own lives. Because you can have one spiritually vibrant year when you're on fire for God, and the next year distant and removed from Him. A moment of all out worship. You're praising God, you're singing His songs, and then the next moment, you're watching something, saying something, doing something that you know dishonors the God that you're previously worshiping. And this disheartening reality we find even in ourselves. So, as we survey our experience, and Nehemiah surveys his, what's next? What do you do with this disheartening reality that we face? As our next point, an unwavering standard. There are two common reactions to this problem, and Nehemiah does neither of them, right? When you find out there's continued sin in the church community or in ourselves, there's two common approaches. The first is this, the religious approach, right? Which, which, when it finds out there's wrongdoing, ignores it. Because religion's all about good people doing good things so they go to a good place, And anything that tarnishes that, anything that questions that, any any wrongdoing that bubbles up, it's suppressed, covered up, ignored. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Have a look what he says about uh, uh, Elisha in verse 7. Here I learned about the evil things Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room. What does he call it? Evil. Evil, he calls it. See, sin has a way of becoming tolerated bit by bit. And if it's tolerated, it becomes normalised. And that is a dangerous thing. Sin, according to Nehemiah, must be called out, and particularly when it comes to church leaders. That When a church leader abuses someone who is vulnerable in the community, it is evil. When a church leader lets a... Someone who doesn't believe the Bible falls into the pulpit to speak and to preach. That is evil. That when a church leader abuses their position for financial gain, it is evil. And must never be covered up. It's never permitted, never normalised. The second common approach, which Nehemiah doesn't do, is the progressive liberal approach. Well, you, when you find out there's, there's, there's other sin in yourself and in, in others, you think, "Well, maybe the problem's not with us. Maybe the problem's with God's law." And rather than changing yourself, you change what the Bible says, so you don't need to do anything. But Nehemiah knows that God is the author of life, and so He has the authority over our lives. He doesn't want to pretend like he's wiser than God. And so every time in chapter 13, God's people disobey God's word, what does he do? He gets, says, let's go back and obey God and his word. Take the example of the Sabbath. They were not resting one day out of seven. And so what does he do, verse 19? I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened and the Sabbath day was over. He put boundaries in place. Let us get back to obeying good, God's good law for us. See, Nehemiah is unwaveringly standing and calling sin, sin, and realizing we need a change, not God's word. But you'll notice in this chapter, there's a phrase that keeps coming up. Remember me. Remember me. Remember me. That is not Nehemiah saying, hey, look at me. I'm pretty good against these schmucks, Right? No, 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 it's not look at me, it is remember me. That Nehemiah appeals to God's mercy. That's what 22 says. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. You know when you're in school and you did the wrong thing, depending on the age, the consequence was either the cane or detention. for most of us. And now, if you did something wrong again after that, you got another detention. And if you did something wrong after that, you got an afternoon detention. Kept getting more of those, suspension, and a couple more of those, what happened? Expelled. Everyone else can remember that kid in our year who was expelled. Maybe you were that kid, right? But once you're expelled, that's it. You're not coming back. And here's the thing. God's people had been expelled, they were kicked out of the land and they had been brought back. They'd been given a second chance. This is Temple 2.0. This is Jerusalem 2.0, right? And yet, though they've been given a second chance, what are they doing? Disobeying God. And so you have to one day are they thinking, is this it? Have we reached the end of God's mercy? And you and I, particularly those who have been walking with Jesus a long time, may be in a season of life where we think the same thing. Where we know God's good law, his word, and what he's done. But there are times when we disobey him and we think, but I've already had my prodigal son moment. What do I do now? Has God's mercy dried up? Nehemiah knows that God's mercy never ends. That his mercy is new every day for himself and for his people. And you may be here tonight and you need to know that. That you may know a lot about what God has done, but in a season you're in, you're disobeying him. His mercy has not run out for you. It has not dried up. Remember me, Nehemiah says. So, this unwavering standard that Nehemiah has where we seek holiness, but we leave room for our failures and God's unending mercy. What I want to do now is just using that framework, have a look at a practical topic of marrying unbelievers. Uh, In chapter 10, Uh, Paul was preaching, and he mentioned we'd talk about this in chapter 13, so we're going to do that. And we're going to use this framework of having an unwavering standard when it comes to this topic. So in chapter 10, right, verse 30, 30, God's people make this promise in light of God's word. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. This promise you'll notice straight away, is there they're saying, when we, mar- when our children get married, they're not going to marry those of surrounding cultures. Now, obviously, there's a difference here, right? Here, back in the day, parents had a say in who their children were to marry. And as a child, you think, that's a terrible idea. As a parent, you think, oh, it's not too bad, right? But it's different. But the underpinning of this law, this promise, was we may think at first, is it Racism? Is that why they weren't allowed to marry other cultures? It's not race that's the problem, but religion, because the surrounding nations worshipped different gods, different deities to the God of Israel, and Israel was to be distinct, to follow God, and particularly when it came to marriage. Now, marrying those of different nations wasn't ultimately a problem, because you have a look at Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was from Moab, and yet she converted and said, your God will be my God, and their marriage was celebrated. But God's intention for marriage was that God's people would marry someone who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would start a family unit where they were devoted to the Lord in raising their kids. And the warning here in chapter 13 is that of Solomon, right? Solomon, who married someone who was an unbeliever, who was the wisest man of all, and that was his downfall, and the downfall of God's people. Now, living this side of Jesus' death, God's people are still called, if they are to marry, to marry someone, not who's just into God or believes in the divine, but as 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 says, must belong to God to the Lord. Why? Because God's intention for marriage is that you marry someone who worships Jesus, who has the same worldview as you, who in having children want to raise them in the knowledge of Jesus and to love his church, to do it together. That's God's good intention. And also to protect you from what one lady in this church said quite honestly. She said this, I thought I was lonely when I was single, but being married to a man who does not love Jesus, I am lonelier than ever. He doesn't get the very thing that makes me me. Now, like Nehemiah, right, we want to uphold what God says for marriage. But here's the thing. Though I or Paul... We won't conduct a wedding for a believer or an unbeliever, right? We'll we'll do it for two believers or two unbelievers, but not a believer marrying an unbeliever. We won't conduct that wedding. But here's the thing. If you still go through with it and make those promises, or if you find yourself in the situation currently, know this. We will back your marriage to the very end. Once those promises are made, we will champion your marriage not only to work, but to flourish. Why? To the verse on the screen. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Paul the Apostle there is saying, if you're married to an unbeliever, whether you knew it going in or one of you walks away later, sadly, your marriage... Is still a marriage. And so, with that in mind, God's grace, though it was an intention for your marriage, your marriage is, no long, is not a lesser marriage. And so, that is why I and Ed and we will champion your marriage if you find yourself in that situation at present. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, it doesn't make sense. You know, you weren't for it, you're, you're for it now. It's that mixture as a Christian of wanting to uphold what God has said and call us to obey his word and yet leave room for our failures and God's grace and the call to obey him in whatever situation we find ourselves in at present. So where to from here is our third and final point, an, an optimistic future. As you look through Nehemiah 13, you'll notice this flavour of frustration that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah so wants to remove the sin of his people. It's like he's going around and saying, why won't you obey? Come on, people, come on, get with the program. We are God's people here to obey him. What's wrong? And there's probably a bit that's caught your eye, the hair-pulling bit. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now, this is not the approach I would take. Um, if you're meeting with me one-on-one in a situation, I will not be pulling your hair. presume the same for you, Ed. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, All right, we're on the same page with that. But Nehemiah so badly wants to remove the sin and restore the good. Though it's not the approach I would take, his frustration, though, is right. And his frustration, interestingly, echoes that of Jesus's. Because when Jesus went around the people of Israel, he had a frustration of why, O people, we will not obey God? Why do you keep rejecting him and disobeying him in all areas of your life? Why? And there he drove out the merchants from the temple in this healthy frustration. But Jesus... He didn't pull any hair. You know why? Because he knew all it would create is just a bald spot. That if you want to remove sin, it needs to go deeper. The heart. And so he went for that. You know, on that cross, Jesus hung there and his blood was poured out. But he shouldn't have been there. He was perfect in every way. He obeyed God in every single way. What he said, he did. And yet he was there on that cross. Why? Because he went after our disobedient hearts. And there on that cross, you gave him, I gave him our sin our wrongdoing, our disobedience, and we, he took it on himself. And he, in exchange, then gave us his perfection, his perfect record in this beautiful swap that happened. That because of what Jesus did, because his blood poured out, so dealt with your sin, that God sees you as holy because of what Jesus did. So holy, in fact, that God, the Holy Spirit, now lives in you as a follower of Jesus. But that being said, there's still a frustration, isn't there? There's still a frustration which we have with one another of why, why do we backslide? Why do we ignore God? There's a frustration in ourselves of why do I do the things I don't want to do? One moment I'm singing his praises, the next doing something I don't even want to speak about. This frustration we have of our sin, you know what? It has an expiry date. Because we as Christians are not living in the final chapter. You know, take a fruit, an unripe fruit. As it sits there in the fruit bowl, over a couple of days, it slowly, bit by bit, matures And it comes to a point where it is mature and you eat it and it tastes good. If you leave it in the bowl, it rots and goes sour. As a Christian, you're slowly maturing bit by bit by the work of the Spirit. But you never reach your maturity until one thing happens. Jesus Christ returns. Because when he returns, that is when we'll be in the final chapter. When Jesus Christ returns, he will give you a resurrected, glorified body that has no inclination to sin or ability to disobey. Not only will our hearts be revived, but there'll be no more death or destruction or failures in our own life or in the world we live in. On that day, when Jesus returns, our reality will catch up with our identity. Because if you're a Christian, you know what God thinks of you right now? You know what he sees you as? Holy. Because of Jesus. And one day when he returns, you'll be holy in every area of your life. You know how God sees you right now? Because of Jesus? Perfect. And one day when Jesus returns, you'll be perfect in every thought, word, and deed you do. On that day, our reality will catch up with our identity. And here's the thing. Whether you're in this room and you believe in God or not, here's the thing we all long for. Perfection. That's why when a politician does a dodgy Facebook post or found with a bottle of wine, we kick them out. right? Because we want our leaders to be perfect. We say things like, by 2030, by 2040, there'll be no cancer, there'll be no domestic violence, there'll be no abuse. Why? Because one is one too many. We all long to live in a perfect world. It is deep within us, but the solution in getting there is not found within us and is not found around us. It is found from the only one who is truly perfect, Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven to come to deal with our disobedient hearts. And there on that cross to truly revive them so that we would love God and love one another. And then we'll come back to take us to be with him to, so that we can be the people we were always intended to be in perfect relationship with one another and with God. And here's the thing. Right now, in this moment, I would love to give you an illustration or a story that captures this. You know, that excitement of waiting for something that you can't even imagine how good it is. But I can't. Uh, I mean, this week, uh, my wife and I celebrated nine years, and we went to a hotel for our anniversary, and there we got a free upgrade. That was better than I thought it'd be, but here's the thing. I'm not there. I'm here. It ended. I had to leave that room, <laughs> right? Every single thing I can think of, think that how good it's gonna be, ends. Everything I can think of, it it disappoints or sin creeps in. The future, the glorious future of awaits, cannot be fathomed at how glorious it will be. Where there will be no more chapter 13s, where there will be no forgiveness because there'll be no need for it, where there will be no more sin where there will no be disheartened realities in ourselves and one another, that we will live as perfect people in perfect relationship with one another, in a perfect world with a perfect God. This is not the ending we're expecting. Oh, but it points to the ending we all, all long for. And so there's four words, four words that we need to say. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, oh, we are men and women, followers of you, who when we look at our own experience, at our own lives, we are disheartened by this disobedience and the sin that is present. We ask lord that we would not compromise that we would not cover up we would not change what you've called the way you've called us to live but we would repent and obey you knowing that you are merciful and good and your mercies do not dry up. But we ask lord that we would fix our eyes onto the biggest story imaginable, the gospel story of what you are achieving through the Lord Jesus. And we ask that we would look to that final chapter when you, Lord Jesus, will return, be it tonight, be it in days to come, in years to come. Who knows, Lord, but we look for that day when you will come to make everything right again. We look forward to that day when we will be a perfect people in a perfect world with you, Lord God, who are perfect in every way. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask. Come. Amen.